Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover, all for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5,000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5,000. Enjoy. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones, and I'm in for Leslie Marshall today, and I'm delighted to be. She is taking very, very well-earned time off. We are going to be talking about them watching you, listening to you, and reading you, and generally being all over you. Who are they? The National Security Agency and others. Yes, it's not just them. There's all kinds of people who are in our business. I don't like it. You don't like it. Apparently, many of us don't like it, but we don't do anything about it because, well, we cannot. One man who writes about it, though, and draws it to our attention is Dan Frumkin, senior writing for The Intercept, a website devoted to accountability journalism. He formerly wrote the White House Watch column for The Washington Post, where he was a watcher of the White House. Uh, That's where I first came across him. Now I'm watching the White House as Chief White House Correspondent for Talk Radio News. Dan, thanks very much for coming on with us. No, it's great to be here, Victoria. Nice to to talk to you again. Very nice to talk to you again. So the uh, National Security Agency is at it, um, which we knew, and there is a, a bill in Congress to, we thought, uh, the USA Freedom Act, which is one of those great names, which is usually meaningless, to, to curb what they're doing. But it seems that this uh, bill, um, which from when I read your article in The Intercept is largely toothless, doesn't address something that we didn't have a clue was going on. <laughs> Tell us what it is succinctly. Well, the latest thing that we didn't have a clue was going on uh, is what I wrote about yesterday on The Intercept, and that is the fact that the NSA can actually uh, listen to phone conversations by computer. In other words, uh, we've sort of grown accustomed to the fact that they can search through our uh, emails and our our texts and so on, but voice, uh, one always sort of thought they had to be listening with a human being. Well, 
they don't need to do that anymore. And to some degree, it's not a surprise since we talked to our apps. Uh, isn't it reasonable to think the NSA could do this? But they've never confirmed it before. They, they don't talk about it. It's a big secret. Um, and what the Snowden documents showed was that they're very good at this, uh, at least as far as searching for keywords and getting a general idea of what a conversation was about. So they can uh, they can listen to everything at the same time and then search through it. But I thought... well. That... I thought many of us, first of all, thought that they weren't supposed to be reading our emails and texts and things, and we'd forgotten that they could. So thank you for reminding us. But we all thought that what they could do and what the uh, USA Freedom Act was going to be addressing um, was that they could uh, go through all our phone calls for the metadata, but that they could not listen to what we said, that that at least when we talked to our um, proctologists, that at least was <laughs> sacred. Well, yes, no, no, no. The there, you know the NSA historically did not listen to any phone calls uh, that involved American citizens that were involved involved people lived in the U.S. The uh, the big changes that came after 9/11 included the fact that for, for the first time they started collecting at least not the phone, not the content of the phone calls, but the information about the phone calls. That's the metadata that you're talking about. So they started collecting that, and on top of that, they sort of expanded their international surveillance, so that it wasn't just uh, tapping phone lines outside the U.S. It was also, in certain circumstances, demanding information from U.S. service providers. It, it also involved tapping uh, communications from the U.S. to outside the U.S., a lot of which involved American citizens. So your average phone call to a proctologist, at least as far as we know right now, the NSA is not listening to it, nor is it, of course, then transcribed. Well, unless you use words like probe. (laughs) If you are calling your aunt in Toronto, however, or in your case, uh, wherever. The the U.K. or Australia. Then all bets are off, to be honest. Uh, because the, the rules for listening to that stuff are very, uh, very unclear and very, very vague. If they, if they, if they can tell the judge in retrospect that there was that you were talking to somebody who had foreign intelligence knowledge, that has nothing to do with terrorism. Uh, they, 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 they have permission to do this. So, so an awful lot of American conversation is getting swept up in NSA intercepts. Um, but not at this point. We don't think your average call to your proctologist. Okay. So now you said not necessarily terrorism. That's very interesting because when I was reading your piece, um, what I got from it was that no, they're not necessarily only interested in terrorism. They're interested in all kinds of things. And I think many of us thought that the NSA was only interested in terrorism. Seems like they've got a pretty broad brush. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they also collect information for the CIA, and I mean that's why they were tapping Merkel's phone and stuff like that. I mean, they, 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 they collect everything they can. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, after 9-11, they sort of got carte blanche to do everything in the name of terror. But if you look at the, at the, at the rules that we've now seen coming through the, the revelations in the Ed, Edward Snowden archives, uh, they, they use this authority for lots of different things. Well, I mean, we know that there are threats. We've just had a shooting in Texas. We, we don't have any evidence that this Elton Simpson or, or the other guy uh, were, were making any phone calls outside of the country. But we know that there are threats out there. We know that there are bad guys who wish America and Americans harm. Is there any evidence that y- using this method of changing audio content from phone calls into transcripts has thwarted attacks? 
Uh, no, no. I mean, there's very little evidence that anything the NSA has done has thwarted attacks. Uh, the, 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 the problem, and this is what I think uh, led Snowden to do what he did, the problem is that by looking everywhere, they're not looking where they should be looking. So they're getting distracted. They're casting this gigantic net all over everyone. And what they should be doing is focusing on the bad guys. But that's not what they say. I mean, you talk to uh, the NSA, if you can get them to talk to you, which is not easy. But, I mean, if you get Keith Alexander, the director of the NSA, if he happens to be speaking at an event and there's a Q&A afterwards and he's forced to answer a question, he will actually answer a question in, in an oblique way. Um, they, they will say that, that these are e effective tools. Right, and, and if you ask them for specifics, they'll say, oh, well, we can't possibly tell you about that. Or they say they have some, and then when they give them to you, it turns out to be not the case. Now, that said, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that we haven't had any legitimate victories, uh, you know, in, in, in getting bad guys. But the point is that, that tactics, like the ones that, that we've discovered that the NSA was hiding, pretty much have in common the fact that they don't seem to be very useful. I mean... The, the, the idea of transcribing all these phone, all these international phone calls, uh, I mean, uh, what keywords are you looking for? Uh, I mean, th there was one memo I saw where, uh, from GCHQ where, where they pointed out that they were actually having a problem. They, they had this ability, but they didn't know what keywords to search for because the, the actual analysts who wanted, you know, who were looking for stuff thought it was kind of silly. Uh, That's always interesting if the analysts think it's silly. That's a clue. They, they couldn't come up with a practical way to use this to actually do their jobs. Well, so, th th so. there's another piece here, I, I think, which, which is interesting, too, that you've written about, which is the Patriot Act, which was written by, uh, largely by Representative Sensenbrenner, Republican of Wisconsin, uh, who has uh, subsequently repudiated it and wants nothing to do with it and wants it gone, um, is it expires at the beginning of June if nothing's done about it, and um, well, just just three sections of three it. Three sections uh, of yeah. it, and yeah. looks to be possibly replaced by this USA Freedom Act until uh, late at night. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, with his cohort Richard Burr, who's head of the Intelligence Committee, introduced a bill that blindsided everybody. It was kind of like no one expects the Spanish Inquisition in Monty Python came up with a, a, an extension of the Patriot Act with no changes at all, something nobody wanted. But because he's the majority leader, he said, no, this is what I think we're going to do. And everybody went, well, that's not what we want. And so now it's kind of like what I was reading yesterday. It looks like we have no idea what's going to happen. Everything seems stalled. Yeah, they don't have much time either. But, but you know, the question of who wants what, is, it, it's, been, it's broken along very unusual, not necessarily party lines. Uh, which, what I find is that the sort of the elite leadership members of Congress, the ones who were... Uh, who have been part of the ruling elite for a long time, who were knowledgeable and, if not complicit in the use of these tactics, have a much more <laughs> have a much more lenient attitude towards them, and and really don't mind if they keep going on. Uh, whereas it's more the rank and file, both Democrats and Republicans, that are saying, "Wait, this is not what we stand for. This is not what 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 you know you guys voted for in the first place, and and we've got to revive this, revise this." Um, so, but the, 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 the sort of the sad thing is that what it comes down to now is a battle between actually 
you know, honest to God, saying we're not going to change anything. On the one hand, to the the this sort of faux reform bill, which doesn't change very much at all, uh, but will make people feel like they've made a change. This change, uh, what the USA Freedom Act would do, is uh, is change one of the many many programs that Edward Snowden revealed. Uh, the one that really was the most out there because it's focused so much on, on U.S. citizens. Um, but it, it wouldn't really uh, be a, a huge departure. And, in fact, the White House is fine with it. The NSA is fine with it. They that gives it you a clue that it might not be a great idea. I'm sorry? That gives you a clue that it might not be a great idea if the well, NSA is fine with it. Yeah, exactly. It was, this was their idea on how to resolve this problem. The, uh, this, is, this is not... Uh, a major reform bill. Now, that said, it's better than nothing, and so you have all these privacy groups sort of forcing themselves to, to smile and grin and say, vote for this thing, even though it's just a, a mere shadow of what it ought to be. But at least it's something. If they didn't even do this, it would be pretty pathetic. Although there are, interestingly enough, the dynamics are a little bit weird on this one. Again, it's not just a party line thing. There's also a sort of a third cohort of, of, of sort of the, the, the libertarian right and the libertarian left that says, let it expire. Uh, that by, so in other words, you have, option one is you vote to renew it blindly. Option two is you vote to renew it, but with some changes. Option three is you just let it die. Let and it die. Wow. Just, just Foo Fighters-ish. Just those three sections that would sunset on June 1. Let's take a quick break. When we continue, I want to uh, get into more aspects of this and also get the listeners involved as we talk with Dan Frumkin of The Intercept about the NSA watching you, about reforms, and about how they really don't mean anything very much. I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones with you in for Leslie Marshall today, joined by Dan Frumkin, who writes for The Intercept, a website devoted to accountability journalism. We're talking about keeping the NSA accountable, which we could actually talk about for the next two hours because it's impossible to do so. You should follow Dan on Twitter, which I do. Is it? I'm not going to say it because if I say it wrong, everybody will start following another Dan Frumkin. Why don't you give us your Twitter handle, Dan? It's uh, Frumkin, F-R-O-O-M-K-I-N. So. Yeah, I, I was going to send them off to somebody completely different, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get the listeners involved. Dave is in Humboldt County, California. Hi, Dave. Well, I very much appreciate you addressing this topic, or at least touching on it. Uh, Dan, I fear the problem is much worse than you're suggesting. And you're speaking to somebody who's coming from a first-hand position. That is to say that we have now in place a lot of government officials who are not always the good guys. They are not there 
fighting crime and terrorism. They are folks who have their hands out to some very big, corrupt, special interests. Banks that will rob us blind and insurance companies and whatnot. And if you are the kind of person who will actively expose their antics, what's going on, zap, all of a sudden, you get these NSA, FBI technology goons descending on you. They want very much to not only monitor but to interfere with whatever your, your activities might be. They are some very mean-spirited, abusive folks, and I have been living with them now for several years. Uh, I don't know if you feel there's anything to where I'm going, but I don't, I don't want to just go rambling on. Maybe you can speak to where I'm at so far. Thank you very much for your call, Dave. Uh, Dan, um, ha- have you had any uh, experiences with weirdness as a result of your work? No, no, I don't. I don't think I have. The uh, the, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that with uh, with the oversight of these programs exclusively being done by the people themselves, uh, completely in secret. Um, we don't really know what's going on. So uh, I'm, uh, my conspiracy theories uh, tend to veer more towards uh, the NSA doing the bidding of our corporate overlords than, you know, harassing uh, poor people uh, by sending radio waves in their heads. Um, I, I think that, uh, for instance, the NSA inevitably has a great deal of access to information that would be very valuable to American multinational corporations. Um, does it share that with them ever? The, do, does anybody ever take advantage of that information? Well, isn't um, that why it gets it? I mean, surely isn't that why it listens in on Germany and these other countries well, for trade purposes? Technically, they say that is absolutely not. That they absolutely do oh, not b- use rubbish. that information for, for, corp, you know, for, for, for corporate gain. They use it for uh, intelligence and diplomatic uh, and counterterrorism and crime-fighting purposes. That's, oh, who believes that? Well, who, who knows? I mean, that's the thing. Uh, there's a, a great piece by David Cole, uh, Georgetown University professor in The Nation today, basically says the, the biggest problem that Snowden revealed is the complete absence of transparency. It's, it's acting in secret, uh, you know, according to secret law, uh, approved by secret courts, unseen by, by, by anybody. And so we don't know what's going on. And then as an added code, I'd say with the technology changing so fast, the rules don't even vaguely apply anymore. The rules were made long before there were global networks, long before there was anything like speech recognition, long before uh, there were there packetized uh, bits of data flowing through the world on the Internet. The rules don't make don't, – so, so there's basically no rules and no oversight and no transparency. And this is a disaster. Well, on that note, we're going to leave it. And uh, all being profoundly depressed. And uh, fortunately, they can listen to this show. They, it's not encrypted. And uh, they, they can listen to it openly and uh, feel free. They can call us, actually. We'd love them to. Dan Frumkin, thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Victoria. Really appreciate it. We'll continue Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE.
Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall this afternoon. She is taking some well-deserved time off. Normally, you hear me on this show as Talk Radio News Chief White House Correspondent, bringing you all the latest Washington and political news. Today, we're talking about a lot of different issues. I wanted to talk Syria because whatever is going on in that country, it's murky. And uh, I wanted somebody who could help us make sense of it. And I'm joined by Ambassador Gary Grappo, who served numerous assignments at state in Washington, D.C., as well as postings in Nicaragua, Portugal, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, twice, Iraq, and Jerusalem. Currently, he's CEO of Equilibrium International Consulting, which is a firm that provides advice, guidance, and analysis of foreign and national security affairs for business institutions and the media. Ambassador Grappo, thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be with you, Victoria. So now, you see, I, I see Jerusalem, and I'm immediately tempted to go off topic and say, is Netanyahu going to be able to pull together a government in time? Well, as a matter of fact, he literally was able to assemble one at the 11th hour, literally at the 11th hour. I mean, and, this uh, is craziness. It is, and, and he has a very tiny majority, basically the, the least that you can have and still have a government, 61 seats. And so uh, it's increasingly likely that this will be a very short-lived government, yeah. a very ineffective one. Yeah, he can't get anything done, can he? Uh, he will get very little done. Uh, certainly on all the major issues confronting Israel, whether it's uh, national security, whether it's internal matters having to do with um, the economy and uh, education and social welfare, uh, he is going to be stymied at just about every turn. He has a fractious uh, coalition that he's assembled for this government. So all he can say is, I've got a government. Yeah, I did it. much more than that. Yeah, I did it. Now I'm going to go to London and watch them try. (laughs) Exactly. But, um, no, I I think we should look for uh, a very short-lived government, and I would not be surprised in as few as even six months that there's another call for elections. What a, what a mess. What an absolute mess. Let's turn our attention to another mess, and that is Syria, uh, which, you know, we're so fascinating in this country in our coverage of news because we seem to have decided that we're a country that can handle maximum of about two stories at a time, you know, um, and maybe two domestic stories at a time and maybe one foreign story. That's all we can do. We can't cope with any more than that. So Syria's been bumped from the, from the public consciousness for now, despite the fact that the civil war is raging. Um, it's, a, it's an absolute mess over there in the second city of Aleppo. People are now living underground because there's nowhere else to live. Uh, it, it, they're, they're using barrel bombs and chemical weapons, and it's just dreadful. And there seem to be a couple of schools of thought, and I'm interested to know what you think as to whether have they fought themselves to a stalemate in Syria, or is Assad at a point where he's starting to lose? Well, he is clearly losing. Uh, there's no question about that, and, and on many fronts. Uh, but your question as to the stalemate, 
is difficult to answer because um, there are so many uh, groups who are involved, so many fighting organizations who are involved, anywhere from uh, everywhere from ISIS, who is largely most present in the um, eastern part of the country, to Jabhat al-Nusra, a very strong group that's affiliated with al-Qaeda, uh, and then you have other groups, Ahrar al-Sham and Jais al-Islam, who are very influential in the north, where uh, Assad has just now, over recent months, begun to lose uh, some battles there. And so who's to say, even if you have a handful, and even Assad's regime, willing to call for any sort of a ceasefire, that um, one of these other groups may try to step in and take advantage of it. Uh, they're under very diffuse control. There's no unifying command of these opposition groups. One of the difficulties that we face is when the United States decided that we would abstain from direct involvement in this conflict, um, there was no one to sort of try to pull together uh, an overwhelming uh, opposition group that could confront Assad. Uh, moreover, there was no one who could truly lead an international effort, although we tried on the political front, but we less tried. so on the military front. And quite honestly, uh, the effort that was made at uh, Geneva with the two meetings there, they were a foregone conclusion in terms of the, of the uh, inability of that group uh, to reach any definitive solution to this Why? crisis. So, Why? Well, because... Uh, the the necessary groups were not at the table, and I'm including even uh, Iran. Yeah, I was going to say Iran. Obama. You didn't have Iran. They're a major player. Yes, and now there is talk uh, about reassembling this group and including Iran, given the progress in the nuclear talks. Uh, but the real question is, are we going to be able to get the key opposition groups uh, in, in any sort of talks and get them to agree on a way forward. And then secondly, what are we going to do about Assad and his regime? Um, there, there are no clear answers. There's no overarching strategy. No one has a solution. The, um, the moderate Arab governments like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates, um, I throw Turkey into this group as well, are beginning to support some of the Islamist groups. But their purpose is to oust uh, Assad. Assad and to prevent ISIS from taking control. But beyond well, but, that, but that's they a don't have that, that's a tri- but, is, but isn't that a tricky prospect? Because we've seen that backing some of these other groups doesn't always pan out because these other groups turn out to be pretty lame, and you've seen that ISIS turns out to be stronger and comes in and wipes them out. Uh, well, there's certainly that issue. There's no question about it. Uh, ISIS is, is uh, among all the groups fighting there, probably the strongest today. Jabhat al-Nusra, which has a strong affiliation with al-Qaeda, is also very, very strong. And then you have some of these other groups that I mentioned that are strong locally, but not nationally in, in Syria. And, of course, they have um, a, an Islamist ideology, and uh, experience has proven, I think, to all of us, that Islamists have not done a very good job of governing. Uh, they're not very tolerant. No. They're not willing to compromise. And so in a situation like this, when tolerance and compromise are vital to any solution to this conflict, uh, you have to wonder about uh, the ability of the outsiders who are trying in good faith 
to find a solution to this tragedy, as, as you indicated, Victoria, playing out in in so many parts. It, and, and, uh, and I think it's also important for our listeners to, to understand that we've got these disparate opposition groups that you've mentioned. So when, when we hear sometimes as Americans, oh, they're opposition groups, well, then they must be on the same side. No, they're not. They might not like uh, each other at all. No. Now, now there are some, and, and this is one of the very in, uh, interesting developments over recent months uh, up in the north where the opposition has made some pretty impressive progress, the areas around Aleppo, Idlib, Idlib is a province in the northwest corner that borders Turkey and is very close to uh, an Assad stronghold over on the west. Um, they have come together. They are coordinating. And even with the tacit support of the United States uh, through our command and control center in Turkey. And I think the principal reason is because uh, these moderate Arab governments and Turkey are providing weapons, and other equipment necessary for these groups to sustain their combat readiness and combat uh, fighting skills. Um, and they see an opportunity for victory. But beyond, as I said before, beyond this unifying factor of opposing Assad, there's not much there. Um, and it's something that um, uh, these outsiders are going to have to address. Is if, if we're going to have a solution, A, how do we get of Assad? Uh, how do we get rid of Assad, and B, um, what sort of governing um, authority are, are we going to have? What kind of transition are we going to have to what we would ultimately like to see is a democratically governed country? Uh, that's right now a pipe dream. Well, I mean, so many uh, things occurred to me. One thing that I that I have found fascinating, because I, I saw this as a disaster in the making from the beginning, and I hate to be Cassandra, but I feel a bit like the the, the, the CRS. Um, it's nearly a year now since President Obama announced that we were going to arm opposition fighters to confront the ISIS militants in Syria. And this was a program that was going to cost, uh, or is costing, $500 million. And it was to train this sort of proxy force of of hand-picked opposition fighters, which was going to be incredibly complicated to, to pick them. And then we were going to train them um, in Jordan and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Well, it turns out so far it's been 11 months and we've, we've found 400 of them. Um, a whole bunch of them were not able to leave their village, so that didn't work. And so far um, we haven't trained anybody. Uh, we've so, trained very, very few. That's yeah. correct. And, and we've armed probably even fewer. Um, and meanwhile, these other opposition groups that enjoy the support of um, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, Turkey, and some of these other uh, countries uh, are now receiving a steady flow of support, including money, by the way, so they can pay their fighters. So uh, this is presenting a real challenge for anyone hoping to see a moderate opposition emerge from this mess. Uh, and uh, as I said, I don't see this happening in the near to medium term. Uh, we were slow off the mark, and in the end, the United States was unwilling to truly commit itself to seeing a genuinely democratic uh, opposition uh, backed up by an effective fighting force with strong leadership.
We're going to take a quick break. When we continue with Ambassador Gary Grappa, we're going to talk about what a post-Assad uh, Syria could possibly look like if indeed that's possible or whether we're looking at finding ourselves in a situation where Assad actually has to stay. We'll continue. Stay with us. I'm Victoria Jones in this afternoon for Leslie Marshall. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today, and I'm delighted to be talking with Ambassador Gary Grappo as we wrestle with the mess that Syria is. And um, Ambassador Grappo, I wanted to talk with you about what a post-Assad Syria could look like. Of course, Assad and his mother um, do not think that that's an option, do they? No, of course they don't. And... um for years, uh, Victoria, we have known that any effort to oust uh, the Assad regime, whether Bashar al-Assad, the current president, or his father, who was equally as brutal, uh, just more clever in his brutality, uh, would would hang on until the very end. So, no, there's no inclination, uh, in my view, uh, that they might be willing to uh, surrender power. It would really take something extraordinary, uh, particularly on the part of the Iranians and Russians, to shoehorn him out of there. And uh, why would they? Why would the Iranians or Russians want to shoehorn him out of there? Well, um, I mean, they they see the the disaster that's unfolding there, the use of chemical weapons, uh, the the tragic loss of life, which now exceeds 220,000 almost half the population of Syria, and this is important, half the population of a 23 million person country is either uh, ref- is, is either refugees or internally displaced persons. Uh, this is really incomprehensible and defies almost it any is. recent conflict we've confronted. And so that's not good for either of these countries, certainly not good for the Iranians who have a genuine strategic stake in the future of Syria. So, um, uh, particularly with regards to Hezbollah right next door in Lebanon. Uh, so I, I could see the Iranians in some extraordinary circumstances applying the pressure for Assad uh, to leave the country. Now, that would require some other measures being taken, uh, not only by Iran, but Russia, the United States, uh, Arab countries, and Turkey, with respect to preserving some aspects of the current government. I don't say regime, I say government. What we don't want to see is the wholesale uh, um, 
disbanding of the government the way the United States did after its invasion of Iraq. That's what I was going to say. We don't see one. I want to see a, a, an Iraq gutting uh, like like we, like we saw. Well, yeah, but who do you put in? I mean, we we've seen some uh, disasters in the wake of the Arab Spring. Who, who's going to? You've got to have somebody in there. Well, that's right, and and there's certainly no one now. There there may be someone on the military side who could take over for a very brief period of time. Um, there are some individuals uh, recognized by the international community who could step in <clears throat> on a provisional basis and and govern with certain powers during the transition while the country is stabilized, while it begins to rebuild, most importantly, while enormous amounts of humanitarian get in. Um, so there, there might be some, but the question is, can they get these disparate opposition groups, all of which are heavily armed, to accept this? Because no. if Assad's gone, uh, they are going to be looking for opportunities to assert their control, their force, and uh, control territory. No, and that uh, no, uh, no. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a five-letter answer. And uh, which, which I hate to think of, but my five-letter answer is Libya. Uh, I'm afraid, I mean, that's certainly a possible outcome. Uh, and this would actually be far more difficult, I think, than Libya, given the number of groups that are in, involved and the weapons that are present. Um, and what is at stake in terms of uh, the, the surrounding countries and their security and stability, whether it's Iraq on the east, Turkey on the north, Jordan on the south, Lebanon, uh, which is uh, quite in a quite delicate position, and then, of course, uh, Israel. So um, the stakes are extremely high there, uh, and the temptation on the part of any one of these groups, particularly ISIS, to upset the apple cart if something were moving forward in terms of a possible agreed solution is so great. Um, how would we contend with that without, and this is, a, this is an issue, without the insertion of outside forces? Well, now, that, that's terrifying. Talking, yeah, I'm not talking American, but what about um, other Arab forces? Well, they haven't been particularly effective in Yemen, have they? No, they haven't. Um, I mean, they say they have. But well, they say fact, they have, but they haven't achieved their aims. The, 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 uh, the, the leader of Yemen isn't back, and you've got a bunch of dead people. Yeah, not only that, and the Houthis uh, don't seem to be diminished in strength. In fact, they launched a counterattack just within the last couple of days inside Saudi Arabia. So um, uh, we don't know uh, how effective such a force would be. It would probably need some kind of command and control and logistic support, intelligence support at the very least from the West, read uh, the United States and perhaps NATO. Uh, so there are a lot of ifs here, and uh, that's why I said at the outset, uh, the the out even the outlines of a possible outcome uh, are are almost so vague as to be imperceptible at the moment. So we've we've got a, about a little less than a minute here. So is one of the outcomes that that you prop up Assad? I think uh, that's highly unlikely um, for uh, several reasons, based on everything I've read and heard based on what, uh, conversations I've had with Syrians. Um, I, don't see, I don't see Syrians accepting 
any solution that includes Assad. Uh, but as I said, that would not preclude um, uh, some remnants of his government remaining in place to maintain stability, to govern the country. Um, but Assad, I feel in the end, is going to have to find an exit, probably with the help of Iran and Russia, if that can be done. If it can be done with his mother. Ambassador Gary Grappo, thank you very much for coming on, helping us try to unravel some of this extremely complicated Syrian situation. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. I'm Victoria Jones. In for Leslie Marshall, we will continue. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall today. Leslie is taking a few very well-earned days off, and I'm delighted to be with you. So we thought we'd talk about what the police are up to, um, and uh, they've got some, some, uh, some, some new toys. Yeah, toys for boys and girls. We're joined by Michael Gould-Wartowski, the author of the new book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. He's a PhD candidate in sociology at NYU. He holds a BA in government for Harvard. His writings appeared in the Washington Post, The Nation, uh, uh, Jacobin, I think I'm pronouncing that wrongly, Salon, and Tom Dispatch. His research has been featured on PBS and NPR. Um, Michael, thanks very much for coming on. So you're you're a you're a real lefty, then, really, basically, aren't you? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Victoria. Second, uh, unabashedly so, yes. Unabashedly so. Well, I mean, if you, if you're going to be what you've got to be proud. Um, you're probably are you in are you in your parents' basement or? Um... I'm not. I'm not actually. Um, no, I, I live in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn, of course. It, was, it had to be. Of course, you're in Brooklyn. <laughs> of course, you're in Brooklyn. If if you're not, uh, it, yeah, it, yeah, Brooklyn makes sense. Okay. Now you've written this fascinating piece. Five tools the police are using in their war against activists. This really got my attention. Um, first of all, because I like lists. Uh, because I can cope with lists. But second of all, because some of these, uh, some of these things that they're up to, they utilized um, last week with the Baltimore PD um, as they, they took on the protesters. Um, protesters, some people would call them other things. Some of them were protesters. Some of them were not. But they, they did some amazing things. And it, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary. We know that. We've known certainly since Ferguson, that the police have become militarized, but it's not just that. So let's go uh, through the list uh, with your step-by-step guide, because obviously the Leslie Marshall Show has listeners who are active. 
and uh, who would like to know what is what is out there and what is being used by the police and what they should be aware of. Um, for example, I didn't know that the BPD came equipped with hailstorm or stingray technology, although I know about the stingray technology. The Wall Street Journal has done excellent work writing about this. Um, which you know it, it conducts wireless surveillance of enemy communications, and they can they can force your cell phones to connect to it, and they basically jam signals. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know, if it looked like a war zone in the streets of Baltimore last week, that was no coincidence. Or, or if you know, the uh, the National Guard is calling uh, protesters in Ferguson hostile forces. They're they're certainly treating protesters as enemy combatants here. And this is one technology that was developed. Uh, to, uh, to to surveil enemy combatants and was then imported uh, for use domestically. Um, and it jams your cell phone signals uh, within a one-mile radius. It collects your mobile data and uh, sort of forces you to, to connect to this, uh, this security state. Is it legal? Um, it is. It is. Uh, as far as we know, it has uh, been kept under wraps, uh, and, and there, there's now uh, a lot of new information coming out about this, but the uh, federal government was very serious about keeping this a secret for some okay. time, and there was non-disclosure. There were non-disclosure agreements that were signed with police departments and, and that sort of thing. So, so its legality is, is certainly uh, questionable. Its constitutionality, even more so. Uh, but we're just finding out about this stuff, uh, you know, recently. So uh, it's going to take a lot of uh, a lot more investigation um, into this kind of technology. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. Um, so the first thing you said that they do is they equate dissidents with domestic terrorists. And uh, so so immediately you're turning dissidents. And of course, this country has a, a, a proud history of dissidents. I mean, it was founded effectively by dissidents. You're turning them into the enemy. How do how do the police do that? Um, so there, there are multiple ways that they can do this. Um, one, of, one of them is, um, is simply to, to, uh, to put them on the spectrum uh, with um, armed uh, militants, with, with uh, you know, terrorists who actually carry out violent activities, and then they, they put them in the, same, um, in the same category. So, for example, um, our police commissioner in New York City, Bill Bratton, um, is, is pursuing the creation of a new special ops unit called the Strategic Response Group. Um, and uh, when he announced it, he, not only he said it would be armed with uh, machine guns and um, assault rifles, he also said that um, it was designed, quote-unquote, designed for dealing with events like our recent protests or incidents like Mumbai or Paris. Um, he was referring to those, those terrorist attacks in, in India and in France. So um, they, they see... Uh, protesters um, as, as basically of a piece with, uh, uh, with, with criminals, and not just with criminals, but with terrorists. Um, and they've, they've tried to tie protesters in Ferguson. DHS tried to tie protesters in Ferguson to ISIS, the Islamic State. Whoa, 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 whoa. how? Uh, so there was um, a, a, a series of memos uh, that came out from uh, DHS's Office of Intelligence and Analysis um, around the time of the Ferguson protests that uh, said that although at this time, quote-unquote, although at this time violence in Ferguson has largely subsided, uh, radical Islamists have used social media to urge others to conduct jihad. So making this link, even though there's no evidence of any actual link between, uh, you know, protesters uh, calling for police accountability and, uh, you know, people uh, responsible for beheadings halfway around the world, that this was a link that um, the DHS saw fit to make and to circulate to uh, police departments across the country. 
it's that's uh, that's ridiculous. That's like me saying, so you're a lefty, so so um, so you know, so so what do you have to do with gorillas in South America then? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Okay, so then the next thing you've got is arm the police with less lethal weapons, which can actually create more lethal situations. That's right. So, so the less lethal weapons are, um, uh, it's kind of a misnomer um, because they can be very lethal. Um, but these, uh, these weapons from, from the more traditional sort, uh, like uh, tear gas um, and uh, pepper spray and rubber bullets, to um, more recent developments uh, like uh, tasers and sound cannons um, and um, uh, special kinds of bullets that you can fix to your gun and turn it into a less lethal gun and then turn it back, uh, called bozo bullets. Um, these are these are becoming all the rage in um, the homeland security industry, and our um, that market is is now expected to double uh, in the next five years by 2020 because there's such high demand from police uh, for this kind of technology. Which police departments want them? I mean, is it is it like little police departments with 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 six guys sitting around? playing solitaire, thinking we want these, or is it major police departments? Um, it's both, actually. Um, they, uh, it started out, um, the, the Bozo Bullet, for example, um, is, is undergoing its, its first test run in Ferguson, um, which is dealing with, uh, with big protests, of course. But then you also have some of these um, technologies popping up in um, you know, small towns and, and you know, villages around the country where um, these uh, surplus programs, uh, the Pentagon has a 1033 program, which sends surplus military equipment to police. DHS has its own program um, called the Homeland Security Grant Program. So this is going to police departments, large and small, uh, to, to police their citizens. Um, whether or not it, there's any connection whatsoever uh, to their original rationale, which was to, to help prevent terrorism. So, and, and this is whether, in fact, these are police departments that are in areas that are facing riots or that, or that seem likely to face riots. Um, they, so, they could so be in retirement communities, in other words. They could be. They could be. The, 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 obviously, the, the first place that, that they go is, is places where there, there has been unrest, but it, it really spreads very rapidly, and, and, you know, it could be in your local retirement community. That's right. Then you talk about a waging wave warfare, and I found this very disturbing when you talk about these long-range acoustic devices known as sound cannons um, but you, that, that uh, transmit tones that can cause excruciating pain. Um, but then you, that you also uh, talk about uh, more in the domestic sensory wars, um, that they're also coming up with something called active denial technology that, that works like a microwave oven with the waves directed at the skin of a target it to produce an intolerable heating sensation. I mean, come on, really? In this country, is that legal? Is it even something that they're going to try? Um, well, it's, it's uh, legality again is kind of a gray area, um, as, as is uh, the legality of, of much of what they're doing. But um, it's certainly something that uh, has already been approved for domestic use. Um, for example, in Los Angeles County, it's being used on detainees in a detention center there, um, and. Uh, the active denial technology, uh, for example, again was was uh, developed uh, for use on the battlefield, and uh, now it's it's been brought back to to be used on the battlefields as they see them here at home. Um, another example of of uh, you know sort of the more um, repugnant uh, uses of of technology recently by police is um, an innovation called skunk, which is a type of stink bomb that they can spray at protesters um, and that has been used on protesters in other countries, now being stockpiled by police departments uh, like those in Ferguson. Oh, I so, bet they love that. That smells like, like dead animals and poo. 
That's right. That's right. That's how it's been described by, by law enforcement. That's, that's uh, lovely. Now, that one yeah. I can understand, but this other one with the intolerable heating sensation, that one's bothering me that it might actually burn people. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, there have been very inconclusive tests um, on this technology. There's not a whole lot of science on this. Um, this is really, you know, since it's a new frontier in policing, we don't have a lot of data about actually what the dangers are, um, you know, how, how this could harm the human body and so on. So, um, you know, I think that this is definitely something we need to be paying a lot more attention to. We, well, we would if we even knew. We had no That's clue right. and until you told us about it. We had no clue this was even going on. Stay with us, if you would, Michael Gold-Watowski, because when we continue, we're going to talk about what they're doing with robots in this situation. Coming up in just a moment, I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones with you today. In for Leslie Marshall, who is taking very well-earned time off. We're talking about some extraordinary things that the police are doing um, to quell crowds of protesters who they seem to have determined are, well, I don't know, the enemy. Not exactly enemy combatants, but they might as well be the way they're treating them. And we're, we're talking with a remarkably well-informed guest, Michael Gulwatowski, the author of the new book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement, whose writing has appeared all over the place. And he's written a fascinating piece about five tools the police are using in their war against activists. And uh, we're up to uh, uh, the bit where we're going to talk about how they're replacing human beings with robots and predictive technology, which is particularly creepy. Take it away, Michael. That's right. So um, we're, we're talking about uh, the use of uh, semi-autonomous, um, fully automated um, technologies like remotely piloted aircraft, conventionally known as drones, uh, remotely operated vehicles, and other robotic platforms um, that are now already being deployed in support of uh, surveillance and uh, even SWAT operations. Um, and against uh, protest activity, um, which in, in other countries has already been targeted by drones that come uh, equipped, uh, weaponized with pepper spray and other projectiles. So that's what? You, you mean they're firing on them with drones now? Have they actually done that? They have. They have. Where? Um, so in, um, in Los Angeles, for example, um, Seattle decided it didn't want these two drones. Uh, there was too much... Uh, resistance from local citizens, um, so they they sold them to the Los Angeles Police Department two Dragonfly X6 drones, and the right. LAPD has admitted to using them during large right. protests and what it calls quote tactical events. Tactical events. So this is fascinating. There there was opposition in Seattle, which is a you know fairly laid back coffee drinking lefty city. There was opposition because people knew about them. That's right. And right. there was probably not opposition in Los Angeles because nobody had a clue. That's my guess. That's right. And um, there, there have also been um, drones as well as uh, surveillance planes uh, that were spotted in Baltimore in recent days following the, 
the uh, the yes. uprising there last week. And the ACLU is uh, taking exception to that and took action on it today, is my understanding. That's correct. That, that just happened today. That's remarkably creepy. Um, and then your fifth point is uh, that they uh, make, quote, friends and, quote, follow people. And that sounds perhaps the creepiest of all. It wouldn't if I hadn't heard everything else. That's right. That's right. Um, I mean, it, it would be one thing if they were just using this technology, um, you know, it, it, with, uh, with people that they knew were committing crimes and they had evidence uh, that, that there was another crime that was going to be committed. Um, in this case, they're, they're following uh, nonviolent protesters and uh, asking them about their activities on social media um, in some cases. In other cases, um, engaging in what's known as catfishing, which allows them to assume fake identities uh, for the purposes of, um, of conducting surveillance, of tracking uh, protesters without their knowledge. Allows them to? Who, who says it allows them to? Uh, so, so they. Uh, this has been explicitly sort of written into the the um, the protocols for, uh, for example, the NYPD's intelligence division um, has a set of rules that say, okay, this is what you need to do when conducting catfishing on social media sites. Yes, you need to get uh, the permission of police brass, but uh, you can go ahead and conduct investigations involving political activity, quote unquote. Um, there's another instance in, in Bloomington, Minnesota, where, um, and, and we're not just talking about uniformed police officers here, intelligence analysts uh, working for the Mall of America, and in conjunction with the Joint Terrorism Task Force there, um, used fake Facebook accounts uh, to, to track at least 10 local activists ahead of uh, police accountability protests uh, that were planned for Mall of America property. So this is something that the private security sector is engaging in, and it's also something that our own police departments are engaging in without um, without us even really knowing that they're doing it. You know, you, you, you want to trust the police, and in many cases I do, and then you hear about things like this, and it's, it's very scary, you know. I mean, I'm active in animal issues, but, you know, from a point of view of, you know, adopting pets, and then you think, well, maybe that's, maybe that's too radical. Maybe I'm going to be right. catfished. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think um, uh, including environmental and, and animal rights activism, there's, there's definitely surveillance going on of, of activists um, on those issues as well. Um, it's, really, it's really a dragnet, you know, and it's meant to, to uh, get as much information on as many people as possible uh, with as few people knowing about it as possible. And are there efforts, we've got less than a minute, are there efforts being made to stop the catfishing? Or, or can't uh, there, there be? There certainly are. There certainly are. Um, and uh, uh, this is something that we're just finding out about. Now there have been uh, Freedom of Information Act requests uh, filed with, uh, for example, the NYPD and, and, um, and with the Minnesota uh, uh, authorities there, uh, trying to obtain more information so that, um, you know, because information is power with this kind of thing, um, so that uh, activists and, and um, advocates of uh, civil liberties and, and our civil rights can, can actually take action on this. Wow. Quite extraordinary. I want to thank you very much for coming on with us today and uh, enlightening us about what the police are doing, uh, so particularly so that some of our activist listeners uh, are better informed about it. Michael Gulwartovsky, the book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. I appreciate your time very much indeed. Thank you. I'm thank Victoria you. Jones, in for Leslie Marshall. If you're on the line, please stay there. We will take your calls when we continue. Much more coming up. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. 
I'm in for Leslie Marshall today, and I'm delighted to be. I'm very privileged and honored and very happy that Leslie asked me to do this. And our time is nearly up, and I wanted to talk with you, the listeners, in this final segment at 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. We've been talking about surveillance, the NSA, and the police, and we're also going to be talking pure politics this half hour as well. And I want to talk about both those issues at 888-6-LESLIE, so please call me. Uh, we've got lots to talk about, a lot to talk about. So let's talk first to uh, Michael in the Bronx. Hi, Michael. Hello, Victoria. Great Hi. to speak with you. And very compelling uh, topic you had um, in the last segment. Um, I have the answer for you of uh, what is the police problem. If you notice what the people have been protesting, they've been protesting against police abuse and police brutality for the most part. This, of course, we can add to the Occupy protest in the previous year. Um, years. The whole thing is people have been protesting against unfair treatment. And the thing is, is that when you're protesting against um, the police treatment, for example, the cops don't want to hear that, and they look for ways to shut down the protests, however peaceful it is, and come up with a bogus um, claim of disorderly conduct. That's why you have the false arrests. That's why you have the mace, um, what's it, the pepper spray or the mace spray. That's why you have all these drones, all these kinds of retaliations going on. And it's been... Um, a systemic pattern of abuse and retaliation. Now, we've seen it in Ferguson, and we've seen it in Baltimore. And, yes, there have been times when there's violence, and a lot of times the police incite the violence, again, just because they're treating ordinary civilians, law-abiding civilians, as an enemy, and the civilians are only raising awareness that, hey, you're committing, you're supposed to be law enforcers, and you're committing crimes against law-abiding people. And ironically, also, Victoria, I should inform you, just as we've seen and heard um, Department of Justice report and act, correct the plan of action taken against Ferguson, and now we're hearing um, the same thing under the new Attorney General, Loretta Lynch. There's a partnership going on with the Baltimore mayor, and there could be federal civil rights charges going against the Baltimore police. Just as we've seen with the abuse going on in New York City, at times in um, L.A., at times Oakland, Seattle, down in Florida, I wonder which police departments are going to be next, because apparently now people have said that they've had it up to here with it, and we have... Um, we have an attorney general that does not play around. You violate people's rights. You violate the law and the Constitution. 
he will be held accountable. Well, what, what so, you've got, well, it seems, and we don't really know her very well, unless, unless, of course, you live in New York City, so you may know Loretta. I know better. for a fact. You, you know her well, but it seems that she is a couple of things. She is very much for civil rights, but she is also very fair when it comes to the police. She is a prosecutor's prosecutor. She is fair, but and she's fair on both sides, and that's why I want to get um, stressed. And that's what you want. You've got to have somebody who's fair on both sides. You've got to have somebody who's fair to the police. And she she will not hesitate in prosecuting the police by the same token. She will not hesitate to prosecute any politician that uses and misuses the police for their own political agendas. Well, she she shouldn't hesitate to prosecute the police. She shouldn't hesitate to prosecute politicians. And she shouldn't hesitate to prosecute people who shoot and kill the police. That's true. That is true. But I I can tell you this right now, is that she was a federal prosecutor, a U.S. attorney. Usually those that shoot the police, they're already getting prosecuted by the state prosecutors. And they're always held accountable, and rightfully so. What we're seeing here is when police take matter into their own hands and commit the crimes, the same crimes as an ordinary thug would, and then want to use the badge and their titles as a shield and make it a political thing. And at times, they're following orders from a corrupt politician as well. Well, we don't know that. I mean, right now you're speculating. There, there's no evidence that there were any corrupt politicians involved in Baltimore. So that that is no, not speculation. Not in, not in Baltimore. I'm talking in um, past experiences here in New York City. Right. And so that's a Mitch, separate Mitch. issue. We're talking Baltimore right now. Michael, thanks very much right. for your call. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Tamara is in Joplin. Hi, Tamara. Hello, Hello, Victoria. Hi. First first off, I want to thank you for your goats for the old goats. Oh, Ellen will be delighted. Because years ago, I I bought a couple goats for a family in Rwanda through the Greater Good Network. Oh, great. You know, they were doing goats, too. Yes. And I think it's wonderful because they can make milk and cheese and and they can eat the babies if they need to have meat. But anyway, I think what uh, Moser, is that her last name? Who? Who are you talking about? The prosecutor in... Mosby. Mosby, okay. I think she did exactly what needed to be done. The police are there to serve and protect, not to shoot citizens in the back or to chain them like crabs and toss them in a truck with no seatbelt. The police are supposed to be part of the community, and it seems like all over the country, they're acting like a military force instead of a greater good force to the law-abiding citizens of the of the area that they work in. You know, I I think I, I think that there's a. a... I think it's complex. I think there's a lot going on. I think that there are a lot of cops who are not that. But I think one thing that is happening is that that is now a perception and that the police have to deal with that. It's 
time that they did, my ex-boss's husband, who was a sheriff, had probably 20 Nazi uh, 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 things on his tattooed on his body. Well, that's just and, weird. And it's very, it was very unsettling. That's just weird. I mean, that's got nothing to do with it. Well, I mean, I mean, you, 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 you're now you're now conflating Nazism with this, which has you know, you're, you're you're bringing the Nazis into the conversation. The Nazis are not in the conversation. Victoria, you're missing the point. A lot of well, you brought Nazis into it. A lot of people are on Twitter are saying that skinheads and the KKK have traded in their white hoods for gold badges. Well, I would like to see the evidence because I don't go by what people say on Twitter. If I did, well, if I did, I would go and live in a shed in the backyard and put my head down the toilet because I, I could not stand it uh, if I had to live with what people say to me on Twitter, quite frankly, Tamara. Thank you so much for your call. I really, no, I, I appreciate it. But you, you can't go by what people say. You can say anything on Twitter. It doesn't mean it unless you've got evidence. You give me evidence that a cop is a member of the Klan or a cop is a skinhead or was a skinhead, then became a member of the police. That is a different issue. But you go around and you say, oh, well, so-and-so was this, so-and-so is a Nazi, a cop is a Nazi. No, I'm sorry. We're not going there. We're not going to start, we're not going to start throwing around Nazism on the show. We're just not going there. That is the last bastion of a lost argument, as far as I'm concerned. It just doesn't work. Once you've got evidence, I'll go there. I will go there more happily than anybody else will go there, if you give me evidence. But I won't go there with allegations, because you can ruin lives like that. People can be all kinds of things and do all kinds of bad things, it doesn't mean they're Nazis. People can also be Nazis. But I need to see the evidence. I need to see the evidence. Our number is 888-6-LESLIE. 888-6-LESLIE, as we talk about the cops, as we talk about surveillance. And we're also talking pure politics. And I want to bring... Reggie in Georgia into the conversation because he's been waiting patiently. Reggie, hi. How you doing, Victoria? Happy Hump Day Wednesday to you too. And it's my very first time talking with and speaking to you. Well, I am. I'm just so happy that I'm talking with you, Reggie. I'm Thank so you. glad it's nearly the end of Hump Day too. I'll tell you. Okay. Well, I would like to debate. I would like to to talk with, speak with, or discuss with you about the GOP election, and the only one person other than Hillary Clinton who I would possibly vote for would be Bernie Sanders, because unlike the rest of these, shall I say, radical, I mean, GOP clowns, as I'd call them, radical right-wing conservative Republican GOP clowns, both her and Bernie Sanders are actually talking about relevant uh, issues, matters, you know, topics, subjects. Things well, now, Bernie See, Sanders today called for an o the overhaul of the banks. What do you think about that? Well, they well if they're doing wrong, they should be a, they should be in plain overhaul. Get rid of the bad people and put in some good ones that'll do some good for the world, not just for this country, but for the world. And if and if those GOP clowns get in, any if any of, if any of those GOP clowns are elected as our next future president, 
this world we're going to further and way much deeper hell than it already has been into. You know, you'll go a whole lot further and deep into a hell of a handbag than it's already been into. You know, with the uh, economy and stuff like that. I mean, they're not trying. They're not running on principles. They're running to. They're running for money. You know, book deals. You know. Money, all that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of people running for book deals. I mean, book deals are a thing. Here's the challenge for Hillary Clinton. I've, yeah. I've been fo followed Hillary Clinton for many, many years. I interviewed her as far back as 1992, for goodness sake, when her husband was running. Right. The challenge for Hillary Clinton is, and I, I know she spoke out strongly on the immigration issue for full and equal citizenship yesterday, and then she spoke out on criminal justice reform a few days before that. But she seems to be speaking in snippets. I have not heard from her a visionary speech. I know she may not give one until June, but I've not heard from her any, and I'm not bashing her, but I'm just speaking frankly, I've right. not heard from Hillary Clinton a rationale of why she wants to be president of the United States. I don't know why Hillary Clinton wants the gig. Yeah, I don't know either. Well, right? don't you think that a lot of people who are not engaged in politics, unlike you and I, want to know that before they're going to vote for her? Yeah, I mean, look at what this look at what this job of being president has done to President Barack Obama already. He's literally looking like Uncle Ben on the Uncle Ben Rice uh, cereal uh, rice commercial. You know, I mean, look at what it's done to him. It made his hair literally white. No. Oh yeah, no, I, I'm I'm in the White House. I, 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 I see him, and he's thin too. Yes, he is thin. And look with all the attacks and all these threats that he's been getting, and nobody seems to want to help him. But out he had a vision. Oh, he, he, did. he gave us a vision, but I haven't heard of it. I mean, if somebody can call and tell me what Hillary Clinton's vision is for why she wants to be president, I would be delighted to hear it at one eight 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 six leslie But I haven't heard that from her, and that's what I want to hear from Hillary Clinton. I, I've heard it from Bernie Sanders. He right. gave us that last week. Right, and, 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 and Barack Obama, before he became president, was new, refreshing, exciting hope and change and all of that, he was different. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was not a politician. He wasn't born into politics. No, he wasn't born into politics. He got caught up in it when he was running for the White House and, be, and to, be, to become who he is today, but he wasn't born into politics. You know what I'm saying? We heard a vision from Marco Rubio a few yes. weeks ago and a, a, a very well-delivered, um, forward-looking, hopey-changey, visionary speech from right. a young, good-looking guy who could appeal to millennial voters who Hillary Clinton has to win over. Right. As well, an older woman, we have to be honest, I know her people don't like me saying that, but that's what she is. She has to win them over, so she has to have a vision, and she hasn't articulated it. So we need to, we need to hear from Hillary Clinton right. why she wants to be president of the United States. Right. Have you, heard any, uh, have you heard anybody else's vision, like from the rest of the GOP candidates, like you know, Ben Carson and Rick Santorum and Rick Perry and Mike. Well, Ben Carson gave a speech when he was in, in Detroit. Uh, Rick Perry, no, I haven't heard anything from him. Um, not really heard anything from Well, he hasn't said he's in yet. Right. Uh, Jeb Bush hasn't said he's in yet. Jeb Bush is going around 
cleaning up on the money front, and then he'll tell us why he wants to be pre- he wants to be president. I think because he wants he wants to be president. Right. Uh, haven't heard from him. Um, let's see. Well, Rand Paul. Yeah, no, we we heard we heard some rationale from Rand Paul. He gave us a big speech. I don't remember right. the details, but he gave us a big speech. Ted Cruz gave us a big scary speech in a very scary way with a frown. So right. we we know you know we know what he's what he thinks. Right. But we haven't because Hillary Clinton gave, had a very soft online announcement with that Home Depot ad that she didn't appear in until a minute in. And I thought I was watching the wrong ad online. I nearly clicked off it until she appeared. Right. We, we don't know why she's running for the presidency. And, and yet, fascinatingly, there is a New York Times poll out today showing that it's not hurt her. In fact... Despite the scandal with her private email account and the family's foundation, she is actually showing more favorably and as a stronger leader than she did earlier in the year in polling. Right. So this is really interesting. So, look, we have to take a break. I want to thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a first-time caller to me. We'll continue. If anybody can tell me what Hillary Clinton's rationale is for why she wants to be president of the United States, I will be very grateful to you. I will go to sleep tonight a happy, happy woman at 1-888-6-LESLIE. I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today. Delighted to be with you. We're talking politics. We're talking Hillary Clinton. We're talking the Republicans. Um, We're talking about why Hillary Clinton is running for president. There's a New York Times CBS News poll out today showing that she's weathered the uh, news about her private email account when she was Secretary of State and her family's foundation um, practices, her financial practices, which um, nobody's been able to provide any there there by the way but there's been a barrage of information about it showing that she's come out stronger nevertheless she has not given us any rationale for why she's running for president none and i just find that fascinating i find it fascinating and i'm sure she will but she's taking her time. Meantime, she's giving us dribs and drabs. And there's a a couple of interesting bits in this poll. Nearly nine in 10 Democrats say the nation is ready to elect a woman president. Who is that 10th Democrat who doesn't think the nation is ready to elect a woman president? Who is that person? 52 countries have had a female head of state over the past 50 years, including India for 21 of those years. UK, of course, as you know, did. But, well, we're not even going to go there because that'll put me into a rant. Uh, Liberia had a woman in charge. Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, China, 
Pakistan. We haven't been able to do this. We've made it into a very big deal in capital letters. And still, nine in 10 Democrats say the nation is ready. We can't get to, to 10 in 10 for you Democrats. I say you because I, I don't belong to a political party. Why can't we get to 10 out of 10? What is this? I don't get it. Why is this not as natural as breathing? Why is this not as natural as breathing? This should be as natural as breathing. It is breathing. This is the 21st century. Now, whether it should be Hillary Clinton or not is another question. Whether it should be a Republican or a Democrat or not is another question. This is very basic stuff. This is just governance. Don't you think if Bangladesh can do it, we can do it? Are we not number one? I'm Victoria Jones, in for Leslie Marshall. I've had a blast. I hope you have too. Stay with us. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.